This afternoon, we're going to start with Dr. Kara Chu, who is a colleague of mine at the UCLA Care Center. And she's going to talk to us about advances in hepatitis C virus treatment. Uh, I know there have been a lot of advances in a very short period of time, and I think we can all uh, very much appreciate her telling us about them. Thanks, Dr. Mitsuyasu. All right, so there's a lot of content in my slides, and what I'll try to do is just highlight the key uh, take-home points um, from most of them. These are my disclosures. And then as far as what we'll talk about today, we're going to go over liver fibrosis assessment, how to choose between treatment options for genotype 1 um, hep C infection specifically, and then we'll just briefly touch on the treatment recommendations for genotypes 2 through 4. And so to frame our discussion, we'll go through a case. You're seeing a 53-year-old woman with HIV and hepatitis C co-infection for uh, hep C management. She has genotype 1A hepatitis C. She's treatment naive for HCV. And she doesn't have any signs or symptoms of decompensated disease. She does drink alcohol, uh, up to a half bottle of wine once a week, no current tobacco use, <coughs> and no illicit drug use. Does use um, in, had used in the past a little bit of marijuana, um, no herbal or over-the-counter meds, no NSAIDs or acetaminophen. And her HIV is well-controlled on ritonavir-boosted atazanavir and a back of your lamivudine. And of note, she has severe esophagitis with Barrett's esophagus, and she's on daily omeprazole and attempts to switch her antiretroviral therapy for that PPI uh, boosted azanavir interaction have been unsuccessful. She's so she's pretty much stuck with this antiretroviral regimen. In terms of her other history, she has a history of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma that's in remission, opiate dependence, she's hepatitis A and B immune, and her medications, in addition to the um, ART, are buprenorphine, and her current omeprazole dose is 20 milligrams a day. So her exam is pretty unremarkable. She does have an elevated BMI of 30, but she doesn't have any signs of advanced liver disease. And on her labs, uh, her CBC is normal. Her platelets are nice normal, 315. She has normal renal function. Her bilirubin, total bilirubin, is elevated at 1.4. Transaminases are in the normal, upper normal range. Um, and albumin is 4.4. INR is 1.1. Uh, T cells are 615, she's suppressed. Her hep C viral load is 14 million. And she comes to you with a fibrosure score of 0.74, which puts her in the F3 to F4 range. So then we come to our first question Does this patient have advanced fibrosis? So your options are yes, her fibrosure score is consistent with advanced fibrosis. No, the fibrosure test is not reliable here. I'm not sure I need to do more tests. And it's not necessary to determine the degree of fibrosis because the treatment will be the same regardless. Okay. All right. So I see about half of, <coughs> of the audience selected the first response, which is, in fact, incorrect in this case. Um, and I would say number two is, is correct, and number three um, is also reasonable, a reasonable response. Um, in this case, the fibrosure is not reliable because the fibrosure, as we'll go over, includes total bilirubin um, in, um, in, the, in the calculation of the score. 
Um, and then the last option, it's not necessary to determine the degree of fibrosis. In fact, treatment recommendations will differ um, for uh, cirrhotic patients versus non-cirrhotic patients. Um, and so we'll go over uh, those differences. So <clears throat> the evaluation for advanced fibrosis is recommended for all patients. One, it's necessary to um, determine the, the best hep C treatment strategy. It impacts treatment options because several um, options, uh, such as for genotype 1 infection, are not um, a consideration or not a recommended regimen for cirrhotic patients. And then depending on uh, the genotype, thinking more broadly about hepatitis C treatment, and the regimen ch uh, chosen for cirrhotic patients, the treatment duration may need to be extended, um, and sometimes you'll have to consider the addition of ribavirin. And then it's also important to know just how much liver disease a patient has, because if they have advanced fibrosis or cirrhosis, then they will need additional management just for liver disease alone. That includes screening for hepatocellular carcinoma, screening for esophageal varices, monitoring over time of hepatic function, and then additional counseling, in addition to um, abstaining from alcohol, as should be done for uh, as should be done for this patient, um, but counseling to avoid NSAIDs, to limit acetaminophen use, and also to avoid raw shellfish. So, in terms of the fibrosis assessment, I think it's important to look at the whole patient. Uh, the clinical assessment is still important here, and we can't rely just on one um, laboratory measure. So, you want to look on exam for signs of cirrhosis. That would be spider nevi on the um, upper chest, shoulders, upper arms, pulmonary erythema, palpate the liver, um, see if, it, if the edge feels nodular or firm. And then you, you can look at routine laboratories for any signs of cirrhosis or hepatic insufficiency or portal hypertension. And that would include low platelets, low albumin, elevated bilirubin, and elevated INR. The abdominal ultrasound is not really a, uh, a measure for fibrosis assessment, but it can pick up, in some cases, signs of cirrhosis. So it has a sensitivity of about 65 to 80% for surface nodularity, which would be a sign of cirrhosis. And you could also use it to look for other signs that to suggest portal hypertensive disease, such as splenomegaly, although um, we do see that in HIV alone sometimes. So in terms of non-invasive measures of fibrosis, which are very popular now and have reduced the need for uh, liver biopsy, we have both indirect and direct serum markers of fibrosis. And the difference between them is that the direct markers measure components of the extracellular matrix, <coughs> which is what's uh, generated and deposited in the setting of hepatic fibrosis. And so those, those markers are considered to be more of a reflection of the fibrosis process, although they are not actually specific to liver disease alone, and there are other disease conditions where they may be elevated. And so as far as direct markers, those, um, some options, one commercially available here in the U.S. is Fibrospect 2, and then another which is not currently available in the U.S. is the, is the ELF test. As far as indirect serum biomarkers, you can use routine laboratory tests and demographics to do calculations, and there are online calculators um, easily available. Um, and uh, ones that are commonly used are the FIB4 score, which has been validated in co-infection. That includes uh, age, platelet, ALT, and AST. And then the APRI score, or AST to platelet ratio. And FibroSure is another commercially available assay. Um, and includes a number of different markers. And here's where, um, for this patient, it's not a reliable test because she, with the adazanavir, has an elevated bilirubin, and any condition that increases bilirubin will make this uh, uh, test less reliable, such as Gilbert's or hemolysis. 
so not um, each of these tests, when used alone, is not sensitive enough for the detection of advanced viruses. So really what you have to do is combine multiple measures. And what's important to know about these tests is that they perform best at the extremes of the scores. So if the scores are very high, then those are quite specific for uh, the patient having advanced fibrosis or cirrhosis. And if the scores are very low, then you can feel pretty confident that uh, you can exclude advanced fibrosis or cirrhosis. When they're in that indeterminate range or in intermediate range, then there um, is more of a chance for misclassification. And so the tests, uh, when the scores uh, fall in the middle, are not so reliable, and you can't confidently exclude cirrhosis. Another non-invasive approach now, FDA approved in the US, is transient elastography. That's the fibro scan. Um, this measures liver stiffness. It's done with an ultrasound probe, and vibrations pass through the liver. Um, and the rate at which the vibrations pass through the liver correlates with liver stiffness. And when the scores are high, again, there's good correlation with advanced disease. Um, but at the, lower, at the lower scores, it may, again, uh, not be so reliable. And uh, the results are also affected by certain conditions, hepatic inflammation, so like an acute hepatitis C, it's not going to so reliably measure fibrosis. Um, in obesity, where the probe doesn't penetrate deep enough, and there is um, a larger uh, probe um, that you can use in that case. Ascites, and even um, food or the fasting state um, can affect transient elastography. So um, recent food intake will increase the FibroScan uh, score. So preferably, it's usually done a few hours um, uh, after eating and not immediately after eating. And then we still have the liver biopsy, which plays a role or has a role um, in some cases still. And um, while it has been the gold standard, it is subject to sampling error. There can be heterogeneity in terms of fibrosis in the liver. Um, and then if the tissue samples are too small, then you may understage uh, the degree of fibrosis. So the smaller the sample, the more um, likely that it's going to be called as uh, having a lower stage of disease. So it's actually important to read the, the text of the, um, of the liver biopsy and not just the, the final impression to see if there uh, is an adequate sample. So normally we want at least two to two and a half centimeters of length of liver tissue and at least 11 uh, portal areas. Um, there are, uh, <coughs> has also been reported to be discordance um, between lobes um, uh, in up to a third of bilobar biopsies. And uh, of course, the liver biopsy is invasive, and so uh, patient acceptance may be a little bit lower. But another uh, pro for the liver biopsy is that you can evaluate for other causes of liver disease like autoimmune hepatitis. So the recommended approach for fibrosis assessment is really to combine multiple measures. There have been some data to suggest that the most efficient approach, um, instead of doing you know, serial measures, is to combine direct biomarkers and transient elastography. And in that case, if, if there's any discordance, to consider liver biopsy. And if you don't have um, available to you transient elastography or the direct biomarkers, then um, use those indirect serum biomarkers um, and use more than one. And then if there's discordance again, or if there's still any concern, like if they fall in the intermediate range, and if there's still concern that the patient might have cirrhosis, then move on to other measures like liver biopsy. All right, so back to our case. She does not have any clinical or laboratory signs of cirrhosis, and you calculate her FIB4 score, and it's 0.96. Her APRI score is 0.163. 
and you're able to get one of those direct markers, the FibroSpec2, and she has a score of 25. And she gets ultrasound imaging done, and it's pretty much normal. So how do we interpret these at this point? These are very low scores for FIB4 and APRI. And so the negative predictive value is quite high um, for advanced fibrosis or to exclude advanced fibrosis um, with these scores. And that serum uh, panel, the FibroSpec2, um, her probability of having advanced fibrosis or cirrhosis is, is very low. So I think altogether with her um, exam findings, her labs, and these, and these uh, serum biomarkers, it's unlikely that she has cirrhosis. Okay, so now you've determined she doesn't have cirrhosis, and she has genotype 1A hepatitis C. She's on ritonavir-busidatazanavir with a bacavir-lamivudine, as well as omeprazole daily. What would you treat her with? Your options are lidipasvir-sofosfavir once daily for 12 weeks, elbasvir-grazoprevir once daily for 12 weeks, Peritaprovir, ritonavir, ambitosvir, plus disabivir, and I'll also call that, or refer to that as the PRO-D regimen, with weight-based ribavirin for 12 weeks, semeprovir plus cefosfavir once daily for 12 weeks, or decladosvir at a 30 milligram dose plus cefosfavir daily for 12 weeks. Okay, so the audience likes lidipasvir, cefosfavir. Um, so all of these are um, recommended regimens for the treatment of genotype 1A, hepatitis C, um, and the question is really how, how do you choose between them? So before we get into that, we'll go over the treatment recommendations. And I'll call your attention to the first column, which is the, the treatment recommendations for non-serotic patients, and that's whether they are treatment naive or pegylated interferon and ribavirin experience. So you can see all those same regimens listed. A couple important things to note are that for elbasvir and grazoprevir, the 12-week regimen only applies if there are no significant NS5A resistance-associated variants or RAVs. So in this, in this regimen, elbasvir is the NS5A inhibitor. And for 1A infection, you have to do baseline resistance testing for NS5A resistance if you want to use this regimen. If there are resistance uh, significant RAVs, then the recommendation would be to extend the duration to 16 weeks and to add ribavirin, and then it falls to, um, to being an alternative uh, recommendation. Um, and then um, other things to note here, um, in the middle column, we have the recommendations for treatment-naive compensated cirrhotics. And you see elbasvir grazopavir again with the, um, with the resistance caveat, and lidipasvir sofosfavir are the recommended agents. And the three, the PRO-D, semeprovir, and decladosphere regimens fall off the recommended list because of toxicities related to, um, to cirrhosis or lack of data. Um, and uh, on the, the right-hand column, that shows uh, recommendations for uh, interferon ribavirin experience compensated cirrhotics. Okay, so to review recommendations in genotype 1B, 1B is easier to treat than 1A. So you can see how that manifests. For elbasvir grazopavir, no resistance testing is needed, and you can just do 12 weeks. For the PRO-D regimen, no ribavirin is needed, and um, and you can consider PRO-D without ribavirin for compensated cirrhotics um, and really only for child pew uh, A 
disease, which is how we define compensated cirrhosis um, for these guidelines. And, um, but in that setting, if they have child QA disease, there is a risk for drug-induced liver injury. So it's probably not something that you really want to reach for in your, in your compensated cirrhotics. Um, but if you do have to use it, then you're going to monitor very closely in those first few weeks for liver injury. So as far as the data for these regimens in co-infection, Grisoprevir albazir uh, was studied um, in co-infection uh, in the C-EDGE co-infection trial. And what you can see here, this included mostly genotype 1 patients and um, a minority of genotype 4 patients, and there were very high SVR rates across the board. Um, and uh, <clears throat> only about 16% of uh, the patients in this case had cirrhosis, and, um, and separately in a pooled analysis of hep C mono-infection trials, um, uh, the 12-week duration of Elvisir um, was associated with much decreased SVR rates if there were um, RABs present with an SVR12 of only 70% versus 98% in the absence of the RABs, and thus that recommendation for resistance testing um, in 1A. Ally 2 was the trial that studied Declasir and Sofosbuvir in co-infection, and uh, this also included genotypes uh, one through four infection, but the majority had genotype one infection. There were very few with two, three, and four. Um, and uh, this included treatment naive and experienced patients. And so I'll highlight here in that left-hand column, um, this is, that's the SVR rate of 96.4% in previously untreated patients and 97.7% uh, SVR in previously treated uh, patients with, with the 12-week regimen, and the eight-week regimen had an inferior um, SVR rate. And so great response rates, again, um, of over 96% with decladosphere sofosfavir in co-infection. And uh, decladosphere allows for a lot of different antiretroviral regimens, and in a separate analysis, there were high SVR rates across um, the different kinds of antiretroviral therapy. And then lodiposphere sofosfavir in co-infection, this was the ION4 trial. Um, and here are the SVR rates by naive and treatment experience history, um, cirrhosis and no cirrhosis, and great response rates across the board, again, of even 94% in cirrhotic patients. So um, what was interesting in this study was that there were 13 who did not achieve an SVR, and 10 of those were um, patients who had relapse after having um, undetectable uh, viral loads at end of treatment. All 10 of those individuals were black, and eight out of 10 of them were on an efavirenz-based regimen. Um, and uh, pharmacokinetic analyses were done, and there weren't any differences that could explain uh, why these patients might have had a higher relapse rate um, than, than others. And so that has actually led to some providers switching their patients off of a favorin-based antiretroviral therapy if they're going to use lidipasir sofosbuvir. I think we don't really know the answer here. There have been um, some other studies. There was an NIH study of the same regimen for 12 weeks um, where the majority of patients were African-American. That was a, an N of 50, and 40% of those patients were on a favorins, and 49 out of 50 of those patients had SVR. And then there's more recent real-world data that doesn't describe antiretroviral regimens, but showed very high response rates um, without any differences by black race, or by race, I'm sorry. So um, 
but there might be reasons that you might want to switch your patients off of efavirenz anyway these days um, to avoid this uh, potential concern. So <laughs> another question has been, can we use the eight-week duration of ledipastir cefosbuvir in co-infection? So from the hep C mononfection trials, there was one analysis that was a post hoc analysis um, that looked at eight-week durations of ledipastir cefosbuvir in patients who had a viral load of less than six million or higher than six million, and they saw um, no difference in response rate um, uh, in those who had a viral load of under six million. So some, some providers are using eight-week durations in patients who um, have hep C viral loads under six million and who do not have cirrhosis. Um, that would not be recommended in patients who have cirrhosis. Um, and so you might actually get some pushbacks from insurance providers who want you to use the eight-week duration in co-infection. There are really very limited data on this duration um, in co-infection and it's not recommended to shorten therapy to eight weeks at this time in co-infected patients. So what are the key considerations when you're choosing between the treatment regimens? So we have those five different um, options for genotype 1A infection. So you're going to look at drug interactions between the antiretroviral therapy and hep C um, DAAs, drug interactions between the hep C DAAs and other drugs that patients are on for comorbidities, such as proton pump inhibitors, and then look at comorbidities, which uh, might impact uh, toxicities and treatment options, such as cardiac disease um, and concern for anemia if, uh, if you're going to use ribavirin. And then renal, insu renal insufficiency, where depending on the degree of renal insufficiency, your treatment options may be more limited. And um, uh, we also know of an, uh, of an interaction between tenofovir and ledipasvir, where um, when they're co-administered, tenofovir levels are, are increased with uh, TDF specifically. So I'm just going to highlight here, because Dr. Kaiser is going to go into more detail um, about the drug interactions, and particularly the interaction between tenofovir and ledipasvir. Um, but um, I wanted to discuss uh, what the allowed antiretroviral therapy are for each of the different hep C regimens. So for ledipasvir, cefosbuvir, most, most antiretroviral therapy is going to be allowed with the caveat of that issue with um, tenofovir interactions with ledipasvir. Um, for elvisvirgrizopavir, HIV protease inhibitors cannot be co-administered with this regimen, and neither can efavirenz. For the PRO-D regimen, atazanavir, oops, atazanavir is allowed, um, uh, but currently not the other um, uh, boosted HIV protease inhibitors on the, on the label. Um, and then um, efavirenz can also not be co-administered with the PRO-D regimen. For semeprovir, Again, this is another NS3 protease inhibitor. You cannot co-administer semeprovir with HIV protease inhibitors or um, efavirenz. And then for decladosphere, there are pretty much no restrictions on antiretroviral therapy, but you may have to adjust the decladosphere dose based on what antiretroviral therapy you're using, and it's not necessarily going to be class-specific. So... Um, the standard dose of decladosphere is 60 milligrams, and depending on whether the, um, the concomitant antiretroviral therapy is a CYP3A inducer or inhibitor, you're going to dose adjust down or, or up. So there's been some interesting data on the impact of acid-suppressing agents on the efficacy of ledipasvir cefosbuvir. So HCV target is a consortium of clinics um, that are reporting on HCV outcomes, treatment outcomes. Um, and they presented some data at ASLD, which is the uh, U.S. liver meeting, this past fall, 
that suggested that those who took, uh, who were taking a PPI at the time of hepatitis C treatment with lidipasvir sofosbuvir had a reduced response rate um, to, um, to hep C treatment with a 93% SVR versus 98% SVR. So we do know that lidipasvir uh, uh, solubility de decreases with increasing pH, and the current label, the current FDA label, allows a maximum dose of 20 milligrams daily of omeprazole um, with the recommendation to give it simultaneously under fasted conditions with lidipasvir cefosbuvir. Um, but this, this data um, was a little bit concerning, and while the response rate is still pretty great, 93%, I, I think, you know, do we really want to take an, any hit at all? Because patients who fail will likely fail with the development of NS5A resistance. So um, just at EASL a couple weeks ago, which is the European liver meeting, there were more real-world data um, from another consortium um, presented that, uh, that did find that in unadjusted analyses, BID PPI use was associated with a, a reduced SVR rate of 91.7%, but, uh, but PPI use in multivariate analysis did not come out as a risk factor for um, uh, reduced SVR. So I think the, there's still some concern there. Um, and if possible, I would avoid co-administration of PPIs with lidipasvir cefosbuvir. I think a lot of our patients are actually on PPIs sometimes without a clear indication, so that's a great opportunity to review their medication list and, and get them off it if they don't need it. Um, but uh, particularly if they're on a dose higher than 20 milligrams, then, uh, then I would be um, especially concerned about um, giving it with lidipasvir cefosbuvir. And then this slide just summarizes options um, uh, for treatment in renal impairment. And I'll just highlight that in those on dialysis, um, for genotype 1A infection we, uh, and, and 4, we just have one treatment option, which is Elbisvir grizopavir, um, and then an additional option in 1B of, of the Pro-D regimen. So going back to our case, she's on adazanib rotonavir, abacavir lamivudine, she's on omeprazole, and now her uh, gastroenterologists have increased her omeprazole dose to 40 milligrams. And again, you can't change your antiretroviral therapy. So what would you select now? And these are the same options as were, were given before. Okay. So declassier cefosbuvir. So that is definitely one treatment option. And the other one um, that may be a consideration here is that pro-D regimen. But that's a, uh, you would have to have a discussion with this patient um, because that's a significant pill burden, also added monitoring with ribavirin. Um, but either one would be acceptable um, given the antiretroviral therapy uh, that she is on and uh, the PPI that she's on. Okay, so just really quickly running through genotype 2 recommendations, um, we are still left with cefosfavir and ribavirin um, for non-serotic patients, and then extended duration of that for, um, for treatment naive and pegylated interferon or ribavirin experienced compensated serotic patients. Um, and for those who can't take ribavirin, decladosphere and cefosfavir um, would be recommended. But you can see where there's still uncertainty as to the optimal treatment in serotic patients with that extended duration um, being provided as a, a suggested range of 16 to 24 weeks. 
And so there's still, um, there are still improvements that, um, that we, we need in treatment of genotype 2 cirrhotics. And the same holds for genotype 3. So for genotype 3, there's only one interferon-free regimen that is recommended. That's decladosphere cefosbuvir, 12 weeks in, um, in naive and experienced non-cirrhotic patients. And then in compensated cirrhotics, um, can extend the duration of decladosphere cefosbuvir uh, to 24 weeks and consider the addition of ribavirin, but the role of ribavirin in this case is, is uh, still unclear. And response rates are, are, are not quite optimal in genotype 3 cirrhotics. Um, they're, close, they're under 90%, um, more in the 80s, or even lower in some studies. So another treatment gap here. And so I just wanted to briefly mention sofosbuvir velpatosphere, which is going to likely be approved by the FDA um, by July. And that's a pangenotypic regimen with a slightly higher um, barrier resistance and um, great response rates across all genotypes. For genotype 3, you can see SVR of 95%, but NS5A resistance actually still has an impact on SVR here. So it's not quite yet an optimal regimen, but much better than our option, uh, our, uh, our current option of cefosporin declasphere for up to 24 weeks for cirrhotic patients. And then for genotype 4, um, there are a few, a few options here, the ProD regimen, Elbisvir, Grisoprovir, and Lodiposvir, Sofosbuvir. Okay, so it is important to know um, what the patient's cirrhosis status is, what a hep C subtype they have, their prior treatment and baseline resistance because of the potential need to extend duration or add ribavirin based on their cirrhosis status and, and uh, uh, prior treatment history. And what we are seeing is that resistance-associated variants have the greatest impact on treatment response in genotype 1A and 3 uh, infection. And as I mentioned earlier, genotype 1A is harder, than, harder to treat than 1B. I wanted you to be aware of some warnings um, from the FDA. So sofosbuvir, when given with amiodarone, has led to some serious symptomatic bradycardia, including uh, fatal cardiac arrest. And this seems to, appear, uh, seems to occur, especially when sofosbuvir is given with another hep C DAA. That could be lidivisvir, decladosvir, semeprovir. So you want to avoid this combination. And then all the NS3 protease inhibitors, um, all those regimens, paratapravir, semeprovir, grisoprovir, those are contraindicated in patients who have child pew, B, and C disease due to uh, risk for hepatic decompensation, um, including need for liver transplantation and, and death. So monitoring on treatment, um, it's really important to um, check in with the patient, whether by phone or in clinic, to monitor their adherence for adverse events, to go over whether or not they're, they're planning on or taking new drugs to review drug-drug interactions. And you want to bring them into the clinic to check um, labs, CBC, creatinine, and LFTs at week four, um, with recommendations here for how um, to either monitor or discontinue therapy if uh, they do have any ALT um, increases. You can do more frequent monitoring if they're receiving uh, ribavirin for anemia. And then grisoprovir elbosphere is associated with late LFT elevations. So whereas for the other regimens, you might just follow them at week four and then at end of treatment, in this case, if you're using grisoprovir elbosphere, you have to bring them back in for week eight LFTs. And then if you're using the 16-week course, week 12 LFTs. Um, and uh, of course, renal monitoring, as Dr. Kaiser will discuss. And then as far as when um, or how to assess uh, treatment response, check the viral load at 12 weeks after treatment completion for that SVR12 determination of cure. And you can consider a hep C viral load at the end of treatment or 24 weeks after end of treatment, but that's just a consideration. It's not a firm recommendation. And the con concordance between SVR12 and 24 is very high, and thus um, you really um, 
only need to check it SVR uh, 12. And then I think it's important to remind patients that cure of hep C with treatment does not mean that they're immune to hepatitis C reinfection, and we do see high rates of reinfection in our, in our co-infected patients, and you want to continue to review their risk factors, and then, of course, manage their liver disease. And uh, just a brief mention that treatment, uh, man, uh, treatment of treatment failure, so retreatment of treatment failures, um, the optimal approach is, is really still unknown, but there are some more um, regimens on the horizon that look really great. These are considered next-generation agents, pangenotypic, um, and I've listed uh, several of them in the left-hand column. And the great thing is it doesn't look like these need to be given with ribavirin. They have a higher barrier to resistance and activity against common uh, resistance-associated variants and improved efficacy in cirrhotic patients. So what's wonderful is that now the treatment um, options for co-infected patients are much improved. Really, they are no different um, from the recommendations for hep C mono-infection, whereas in the past with interferon, we saw much uh, worse response rates in co-infection. And the real-world data so far shows similar efficacy as in clinical trials. And as demonstrated, treatment is not always straightforward. I really urge you to use drug interaction references like hepdruginteractions.org and frequently check um, uh, the, their uh, their non-antiretroviral uh, medications, including over-the-counter meds, um, and uh, make sure you assess their cirrhosis status and prior treatment experience. And there's still a need to determine the optimal treatment for certain, uh, certain populations, like genotype uh, 2 and 3 cirrhotics and uh, retreatment of DA failures. So go back to the guidelines frequently because they're updated often. Thanks. have questions, either come to the microphones or pass your cards to the monitors. I think the question is almost as long as your talk. <laughs> uh, see, the package insert for grisoprovirol elbosphere warns of possible severe liver inflammation in form of transaminitis. For those patients who start off with transaminitis of greater than two to three times the upper limit of normal, is it okay to use this agent? It is, and in fact, what we usually see is improvements in transaminases on treatment um, with virologic suppression, but you just have to monitor for those late, um, late elevations that reflect more uh, drug-induced liver injury. And for many cirrhotic patients, most uh, modest insurance plans do not allow for endoscopy in cirrhosis. Is it okay? go ahead with treatment even without endoscopy? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. So um, in the interferon era, it was important to do endoscopy um, because interferon uh, was associated with increased risk for decompensation. So if they had varices, they uh, could decompensate and be more likely to bleed. Now there's not really that concern with the DAAs, but um, the only consideration would be maybe you would if they did bleed, you wouldn't want them to bleed while on treatment if that might interrupt their treatment. But um, if they're compensated cirrhotic child PUA, then I think it's okay to move forward if it's tough to get, uh, move forward with treatment if it's tough to get that endoscopy in a timely way. And uh, does the latest ASLD guideline no longer recommend alpha feta protein testing anytime? Yes, for some time now. The guidelines have not recommended alpha-fetoprotein for hepatocellular carcinoma screening. 
um, because it's not specific. Um, but I will say that uh, a lot of hepatologists still measure uh, the AFP. So it's, it's done in clinical practice, but not recommended by the guidelines. And how often in the latest guidelines is ultrasound testing for hepatocellular carcinoma recommended? The recommendation is for ultrasound screening in cirrhotic or advanced fibrosis. Um, and so, actually, I think it is really important if to, to see if you can tell if they have F3 disease, because there is still an increased risk of HCC in that setting, and not just in pure cirrhosis. Um, and the recommendation is for every six-month screening by ultrasound. And is pegylated interferon no longer used at all for genotype 3? Well, I think there are better regimens coming, and so there's not really a need right now to use it. Um, but there may still be a role for um, those very difficult to treat patients, especially if they fail multiple regimens. Okay, I think that's our last okay. question. So thank, thank you very you. much. Wonderful talk.